It's great to be back with you again this morning, and uh, you'll notice I do have a stool behind me. If I, uh, my knee begins to give out, please forgive me. I'll sit down. You may not be able to see me. I apologize for that. I couldn't quite handle the stage, <laughs> and, um, but you'll be able to hear, I trust. But we're here this morning to worship the living God, and it's a joy to be able to do that in company with his people. It's, it's New Year's Sunday, the Sunday before New Year's, and we often, as the New Year approaches, we look back, don't we, over the past year. We think of things that have happened, uh, tragedies, perhaps hardships, people who have died who've been notable, either because they were notorious for the nefarious, the evil things they'd done, you know, or because of the things that we remember them for, perhaps with fondness and gratitude. We look ahead, don't we? we? We may make those New Year's resolutions or not, but, but we have goals, perhaps, or we have aspirations for the new year. It's a, it's a time of turning the page, a new, new chapter. It's a time of new beginnings, and the text before us is one verse from the Old Testament that occurs right in the middle of turning the page to a new beginning. And it may surprise the starch out of you when you see what it is. But bear with me and turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 3 and verse 14. Of course, the context is the record of those who are rebuilding parts of the wall of Jerusalem with Nehemiah under his guidance. And then we come to verse 14. And we read these memorable words that you've heard many sermons on, I'm sure, in the past. The dung gate was repaired by Malchijah, son of Rechab, ruler of the district of beth Hakarim. He rebuilt it and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Thus far in God's word, it is inerrant and it is sure. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, teach us, even in a verse like this, teach us of yourself, what you are doing in history in our world what you're doing in our time and in our lives and here at Christ's community. Though God change us for having met here in your awesome presence and heard you speak by your spirit through your word. Oh God, we would see Jesus this day and we would that the community round about us see Jesus in us. We pray it in his name. Amen. The dung gate. Refuge, the junk gate, the trash gate, the garbage gate. Not a place that you would like to linger in your daily devotions, I imagine, this verse. But you know, it occurs in a context. It occurs in a context of the grand sweep of what God is doing from the time that he created this world and our first parents, the first members of our race, Adam, the first man, Eve, the first woman, plunged into rebellion against God by listening to the temptation of the adversary of God represented by the serpent in the garden. And from that time on, this world has not been the beautiful world God made it to be and intends it one day to be again. And our race isn't either. We have had one problem after another. We see wars, we see disease, we see poverty, we see starvation and hardship. We 
see trouble, sickness, and death. But from the beginning, it was not so. God made the world beautiful. In Romans chapter 8, God says through the Apostle Paul, right now, even now, creation itself is groaning, looking forward to being released from the judgment that began at the time sin entered God's good creation and resulted in its being marred and judged. But you see, God didn't leave it there. He could have obliterated the planet and started over. But God is not one to say to his adversary, Satan, made by God a holy angel, rebellion against God, bringing about his fall prior to his serving as the, as the channel through which evil enters human experience in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. And God does not say to Satan, all right, you won that one, best two out of three, Satan. He doesn't do that. God has a purpose that will not be thwarted. It's a good purpose because he's a good God, a righteous, a just and a true God, but a good and a loving and a long-suffering God. And he begins to unfold through the pages of Scripture a story, a great story, the meta-narrative, if you will, of redemptive history of God saying, whispering a love letter to a lost people and drawing them back to himself, in which he says in the person of his son and the story that unfolds about him, I love you. I'm not done with you yet. I'm not going to throw you away. I'm going to redeem you. It will cost me, but I love you. And so the story begins to unfold from Genesis chapter 3, how God brings judgment on the world as it gets worse and worse in its sin until the time of Noah, and God gives grace to Noah. Then we read that he lives righteously. It's not that he was a worthy man. It's that God is a gracious God and he makes people worthy. And God cleanses the planet and he begins anew with one family, three sons and their wives. And then with the blessing of God Almighty, they begin to procreate and spread and and move throughout the world and begin to fill the earth and subdue it as he had initially blessed and called them to do when he created the world in Genesis chapter 1 and he creates humankind and gives that blessing to fill the word world and subdue it and to exercise God's dominion as his vice regent. And as human beings begin to do that, the problem is that the sin of Adam didn't go away with the flood of Noah. There was a cleansing of the earth, but there's still Adam's nature to reckon with. And it soon shows up. Let's not spread out. Let's make us a name. Let's build us a capital city. Let's build a tower whose top will Reach to the heavens, we can look God in the eye. He can't flood us out again, and we'll make us a name. 
And we won't spread out through the earth as he commanded us to do. The Tower of Babel. God judged the planet. He judged earth. He judged his people. He judged his creation. And humankind was confused. Their languages splintered until they were spread. Oh, not so that no one could understand every, anyone else. They spread, according to the previous chapter, chapter 10 of Genesis, by their tribes and their clans and their families and their languages. Mothers could still talk to their little infants and their young children, husbands and wives, but there were differences now. The common speech and shared vocabulary that had held them together was gone. They no longer had the single language system, the core vocabulary that allowed them to cooperate. And they were spread as God intended them originally to be, but they also soon showed their proneness to rebellion and to idolatry. God reached down, beginning in Genesis chapter 12, and touches the heart of one man. He calls him out. He calls him out of a Sumerian, ancient, archaic capital where the arcane arts of astrology were strongest, and you get the later Chaldeans and Magi from that area. Subsequently overrun by the Semites, including the clan and lineage of Terah, an idolatrous father of a man named Abram. And God speaks to Abram and calls him out and moves him step by step to bring him to a land that he said that he would bring him to. Abram, a Gentile, Mesopotamian Gentile idolater from a heartland of the uh, arcane and occult. And God reaches down in grace. And he brings him to a land of promise. And he says, I'm not going to give you any of it except your burial plot. But all this land I'll give to your successors, your descendants in time. It'll be five centuries or more before they come back and inherit the land. And in between, there will be a time, Abram, in which they will dwell in the land of Egypt as slaves. And I'll bring them out and I'll restore them to this land because this land is a symbol of something bigger. It's a symbol of the eternal glory that I have awaiting for you. Not just an unpopulated landscape, but a city with foundations and walls. Abram, we're told, look toward a city with foundations whose builder and architect is none other than God. God says to Abram, in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. God brought about what he said he would do. And he brings out the descendants of Abram by this time. And Abram is later renamed by God, Abraham. You know that name better. And the descendants of Abraham are brought out of Egypt. Two million strong. There are 600,000 plus who are armed men between the ages of 20 and 50. 
And so you can extrapolate from that. It was at least two million people in that congregation. And they went out of them, all of them delivered from slavery in Egypt as God through Moses brings judgment upon the gods of Egypt, parts the Red Sea to allow his people through and brings back the waters to engulf the chariots and soldiers of the pursuing army of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God does all that. But that's not all he does. You see, while they're in the land of uh, Sinai, the desert of Sinai, they are tested by God. Oh, we don't have time to go into all of that, but they are tested. God gives them his law, his covenant through his servant Moses. But he also brings in other people into that covenant. There are the Egyptians who believe God and join with the Israelites as they came out of Egypt. And there are also the family of Jethro, Moses' father-in-law. Midianite, well, Moses had been as a, as a uh, man between the ages of 40 and 79. He was, he was in Midian as a shepherd, learning what it means not to think more highly of yourself than you ought. And he takes a wife, Zipporah. Her name means little bird in She's the daughter of Jethro, or Ruel, Midianite. And we could trace his ancestry back also to Abraham. That's a different track. But Jethro says, gives some advice to uh, Moses, and God tells Moses it's good advice. And, and, and in time, Moses says to the son of Jethro, why don't you stay with us and be our eyes and ears in the desert? We could use a scout like you. No, I have a place among my own people. We're told that he says in the book of Numbers. And, and Moses uh, says, no, no, we'll give you a part in the inheritance with us. Stay with us. And then we're simply told, they went. <laughs> so here's someone of the lineage of Moses' wife's family from Midian who's now joined with Israel. So what? Well, next time you read about them is the book of Joshua. They're settling down along with the uh, Israelites right next to the tribe of Judah and in between the Negev of the desert and the, the uh, uh, allotment given to Judah in the promised land. Judah, through which King David will come. Judah, through which the line of Messiah will eventually come. And right next to it are these people. And then the next time you read about them, is in the time of Israel's first king, Saul, after the period of, of the conquest, the taking of the promised land, and the, the judges that followed and, and governed Israel, and, and then the first of the kings that the last judge Samuel anoints is Saul, and his heart isn't right with God. More concerned about appearances and saving face than about, than about his grieving the heart of the great and living God. But he's given a command, a command to make war against a tribe named Amalek. Why would he do that? Why would God care about it? These people are just outside of the promised land. It's not part of Canaan. 
What's that got to do with anything? Ah, if you go back to chapter 17 in Exodus, what do you find? You find that after the Israelites come across the Red Sea, delivered from the armies, pursuing armies of Pharaoh, and the Hebrew slaves, newly freed, are now in the wilderness of Sinai, a warrior people swoop down upon the stragglers on the convoy. Somebody's somebody's cart is broken down they have to take time to fix it the old the weak the sick the young mother's giving birth there's there's slowing down they have to stop for a bit and it's upon them this warrior race swoops down their name is Amalek they too have a lineage and it goes back to Ishmael and Esau Jacob have I loved Esau have I hated Romans chapter 12. Two seeds, you see. Two seeds. Where does it come from? It comes from Genesis chapter 3 in the garden. God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and between her seed. He, now the one seed of the woman, will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. One is coming, but meanwhile, those identified with God and his ultimate uh, messianic seed, his promised deliverer, will be on one side, and those on the other will be representatives and instruments of Satan. Jesus would later say, you, to the, to the Jewish leaders of his day who hated him, you are of your father, the devil. And the truth of God is not in you. Strong words. It came from Jesus, the Prince of Peace, who's coming. We just celebrated hardly a week ago. Can it be? Yes. Two seeds. New Testament speaks of the God of this world. Jesus speaks of the Prince of this world. Paul speaks of the, the Prince of the power of the air, the Spirit now at work, and the sons of disobedience. Two seeds. Two seeds. God said to Moses, have, Je have Joshua take the, the, the Israelite fighting men and contend with Amalek. Protect the rear guard of the people. Joshua took the Israelite troops, and remember the Hebrews came out of, of Egypt, a mighty host, we're told, large in number, armed for battle. Yeah, sure they were. They were a motley array, never been through boot camp knew nothing about military tactics, strategy, or training. They were probably not in particularly good shape militarily, though they worked all their lives, many of them as slaves. They nevertheless were not soldiers. Amalek, they were an elite force. Outnumbered, maybe, but they had the advantage of mobility, probably. They had a lot of experience in doing what they were doing, and they almost won. You remember? Up on a hill nearby, as Joshua's contending with this mob he's trying to coordinate against Amalek, on that hill stands Moses with the rod of God Almighty in his hands, the rod by which his staff, by which he'd, he'd stretched it out over, over Egypt and brought the 
plagues that were judgments on the gods of Egypt. That staff which he'd used at the command of God to spread open a path through the Red Sea and to bring back the engulfing waters on the pursuing Egyptian army. That staff represented by Moses, the appointed mediator of God's covenant. Lifted high as a symbol of God's power and of intercession. And while it was lifted, Joshua and the troops prevailed. And when Moses began to tire and that staff came down, I remember as a plebe at the Naval Academy having to hold up an M1, just nine pounds. So, not a big deal. Keep doing it. Keep doing it. Keep doing it. How long can you do it? <laughs> After a while, uh, I felt like a ton. Moses' arms drooped. Amalek began to prevail. It wasn't until Aaron, his brother, on one side, Hur, a prince of the tribe of Judah, through which Messiah would eventually come, on the other, lifting his arms up so that he could sit down and keep that staff in his grip to heaven until sundown. And the children of Israel won that day. But then God said, God said, write this on a scroll. This is absolutely a commitment on my part, God says, the Lord is at war with Amalek forever. Whoa. What's that got to do with the story? Everything, two seeds, two seeds. And now Saul, you remember the first king had been commanded to go and bring judgment on Amalek. And he does, except he doesn't. Oh, he wipes out the people except for their king and the best of all the plunder. He keeps that for himself and his troops. He wasn't supposed to. And the last king, you see, was named Agag. And he was going to be a trophy for Saul's honor and his reputation. And Samuel, the last of the judges, rebuked him and said, God has, re has removed his the legitimacy and appropriate authority from you as king because you've done this. And that king who had committed genocide against the people of God was executed before the Lord by the servant of God, the prophet Samuel that day. Well, what's that got to do with our story? So what? Well, because, you see, the descendants of Jethro had settled right in between Amalek and Judah. And Saul had, before he went to war, he said, move yourselves. I don't want to hurt you. <laughs> Get out of the line of fire. And they did, and they moved in with God's people. In 2 Chronicles chapter 2, verse 55, we tell, we're told that they settled in among the Israelites. They settled among the Israelites, and two things were told. One, they became scribes of God. That means they were students of the word of God. And that meant they were teachers of the word of God within Israel. Ah, oh, what a calling from these outsiders who are now insiders, part of God's people. And the other thing you see in that verse is that among them was a patriarch in that line named Rechab. Ah, Rechab, we know that word, yes. But before we 
jump forward to Malchijah, son of Rechab. Let's realize that something happens in between. The Israelites have their kingdom. David is made king. He's a great king. Yes, he has his great faults too. Another story, another day. But, but in it, his successor, his grandson, Rehoboam, loses, the, as a judgment on his own pride, loses the northern part of his domain. Ten northern tribes. They become the northern kingdom of Israel. And they never have a good king. And they always have a counterfeit sanctuary and a counterfeit priesthood and a counterfeit uh, altar all the time until God takes them away. Well, God had promised through Moses at the time of the giving of the law and then in Deuteronomy, just before the children of Israel entered the promised land, God had said, you're going to stray from me. I'll bring judgments if you don't listen. Eventually, the ultimate judgment will come. What's the ultimate judgment? Exile. I'll take you out of your land that I would promised Abraham to give you. I'll take you out and you will learn a lesson about idolatry. But then he says, I will restore you to your land. You see, it's his purpose that ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ, the true Messiah, will be born in the land God promised to Abraham as the promised one from the Garden of Eden onward. One of the wicked kings in the northern king was Ahab. Ahab does worse than all the earlier kings before him in the northern kingdom. And God pronounces judgment on him. And God anoints by his prophet, anoints a charioteer captain, we might say a tank battalion commander, and, and appoints him to pull off a palace coup and remove the dynasty of Ahab. On his way, as he's driving furiously in his tank, pardon me, chariot for his time, he sees someone coming to meet him. It's accounted for us in uh, the scriptures of 2 Kings. And, and we, I believe it's verse, uh, chapter 10. And, and he sees coming toward him someone named Malchijah. Who's this Malchijah? He's a descendant of Rechab. <laughs> you see that line? And he's coming to meet him and he's... And the uh, Jehu, the charioteer captain, says, is your heart with me as, my, as mine is? He says, I am. Take my hand, come into the chariot, now watch my zeal for the Lord. Effectively, he's saying, I want Billy Graham in the White House. <laughs> I want to be associated with this guy. Well, why? Well, because Je Jonadab represented something, someone who is true to Jehovah to his law, his commandments, believed his promises. And then we read in chapter 35 of Jeremiah what he had commanded his descendants. He said, in effect, I know God's promises of judgment are true and are coming. So for my descendants, for us as a family, we will not build or live in houses, plant or eat from vineyards, either grapes or wine, or plant crops, we will be pilgrims in our own land as a testimony, a, uh, an object lesson to our own people that payday's coming. God's judgment will come. And um, 
next time you see them is in Jeremiah chapter 35. Jeremiah is there and he's told by God, you know, the city's surrounded by Babylonian armies that have overrun the whole rest of the country. And, and um, God says to Jeremiah, who is of a priestly line, has access to the side rooms of Solomon's temple. He says, bring the descendants of Jonadab, son of Rechab, into a side chamber of the temple and then put wine before them for them to drink. See what they do. Now, it's not that all wine was wrong in the Old Testament days. It was off limits for certain people. It was off limits for, for uh, priests on duty, especially a high priest who was always on duty. It was off limits for, for Nazarites under a Nazarite vow. It was off limits for, for kings when they were needing their full faculties. Uh, but, but wine was not of itself evil all the time. But what the descendants of Jonadab say is, we don't drink wine. Why? We're teetotalers. Well, more than that. He said, because our forefather, Jonadab, son of Rechab, said, don't drink wine, eat grapes, plant vineyards, crops, fields, build houses, or live in them. We've always lived in tents in obedience to the command of Jonadab, our patriarch, son of, descendant of Rechab. God says through Jeremiah, Tell the sons of Jonadab, the descendants of Jonadab, son of Rechab, because they have been obedient to their father, when my people have not been obedient to me, and I've been as a father to them, because they have been, sons of Jonadab, have been obedient to their father, I will bless them, and they will never lack a man to stand before me forever. Only a few times in scriptures does God ever give a, promise like that. He gave one to Phineas, a descendant of Aaron. That's it's another story. But he gives this. That means that today, this very day, there's someone, I don't know where, I don't know who, someone who is a direct descendant of Jonadab, son of Rechab, in this world, who is a follower of Jesus Christ and a worshiper of God Most High. God keeps his promises. They said, here we are in, the, in Jerusalem now. The only reason we came into the city is we had no choice. We were chased here by the Babylonians. And then you don't hear anything anymore about Jethro's line, the Kenites, Rechab, Jonadab, or their descendants. Ever again, do you? Or do you? <laughs> yes, you do. Our text. Our text from... Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 14, where we read, John, uh, uh, Malchijah, whose name means the Lord is my king, son or descendant of Rechab, who is the ruler of the district of beth Hakarim, ruler of a whole district. beth Hakarim. what does Beth mean? It means house. What were they supposed to do? Build houses, live in them. The district of, the house of, District of Beth Hakram. What's the house of what? Hakram. That means the vineyard. What weren't they supposed to plant? <laughs> Vineyards. What's he doing there? Isn't he being disobedient? No, he's not. Remember what Jonadab's purpose undoubtedly was. Was to point to the faithfulness of God, to his justice, and to his warnings of coming judgment. And that had now come. And now the commandments of God through his prophets was to his people in exile, return. Return to the land of promise. It's desolate now. 
It's overrun by, by wild animals and thorns and uh, all, all manner of, of uh, impediments. But go back. It's easier now. You've been here for a whole generation or more in, in exile in, in Babylon and in Persia. You've got businesses going. You're living in homes. You've got families going. It's easier just to stay, and most of them did. Only a few went back. But God said, go back, and some did. A remnant returned, and they went back, and what do they find? Desolation. Wasn't easy. But at least if they clustered around Jerusalem, they could have each other's back until they could have a wall with Nehemiah's help and governance. They'd be together. There's some strength in numbers and safety, but not a few were obeying God by going into the countryside and reclaiming it from bandits and the wild animals, from the overrunning uh, bramble of thickets that have grown up. That's what Malchijah did. God said, build houses. God said through his prophets, now go back. Now build houses and live in them. Trust me. Plant crops and vineyards. Trust me. Do it even though it's hard. Trust me. I have a purpose. I'm not done with it yet. I promised Abraham I'd do this. I'm going to bring Messiah here among you. And Beth Hakram is only a few miles from a village that you would later know as the birthplace of Jesus, the city of David, Bethlehem. And it's perhaps half a mile, in, uh, half a dozen miles in turn from Jerusalem itself. But that brings us to the other side. You see, on the one side, there is God's faithfulness down through the one seed, characterized by God's grace, bringing them to faith and obedience. And then there's the other seed. Remember? The seed of the serpent. Amalek is reflected in one. Remember the last king of Amalek? His name was Agag. Saul had wrongly spared him from God's appointed execution. A genocidal terrorist is what he was. He's like al-Baghdadi of, of Islamic State today. God appointed him for death, and Samuel, God's prophet, executed that. But you see that line again. Where do you see it? In Esther, chapter 3 and verse 1. And there we read these words during the time of the exile itself. After these events, King Xerxes, Persian ruler in the, of the empire that overthrew Babylon, King Xerxes honored Haman, the son of Hamedatha, the Agagite elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. The Grand Vizier, the Prime Minister, the Emperor of the World, King of Kings is the title he took for himself. Title only belonging rightfully to God. You remember the story? It's recorded for us in the book of Esther. The significance of the story is, is the origin, some would say, of the a Jewish festival of Purim, lots. Haman threw lots, and it just so happened it came out, worked it against him, and worked out wonderfully, luckily, for the Jews. Luckily, indeed. Lots, chance. 
lot is thrown into the lap, the Bible says, but the whole disposition thereof is of the Lord. Haman makes war on all Jews everywhere in the world. Wherever the reach of King Xerxes would go. Why? Because one, one minor official in the gate refuses to bow to him. His name was Mordecai. Why does Mordecai not bow? Well, he doesn't bow to anybody. Yes, he does. There's no indication he refused to bow to the emperor. No indication he refused to bow to other people. It's just like saluting a senior officer. But he won't salute, as it were, Haman. Why? Because we're told Haman, the son of Hameditha, was an Agagite. A direct descendant or else standing in the lineage of all that Agag the last of the Amalite king, Amalekite kings stood for. And then begins this contest between Mordecai and Esther on the one side and, and Haman on the other with Xerxes sort of uh, standing in the center and being pulled first this way and then another way by events and circumstances. Happily, by lot, by luck, it works out. Aren't we a charmed race? No. The book of Esther has two characteristics that make it unique in the Bible. One, there is no mention of prayer anywhere. Two, more important than that, there's no mention of God anywhere. So what's the point? It's that God is gracious to his covenant promises for his own name's sake, not because we, his people, earn or deserve it, but because he's faithful when he makes a promise. And he will bring about the Messiah's birth. And Haman, son of Hameditha, who tries to destroy all Jews everywhere, and with it the lineage of the seed of the woman, promised in the Garden of Eden, the promised descendant of David, with it that messianic promise that it would perish forever, orchestrated absolutely, by Satan himself. Cosmic conflict. Haman didn't realize Satan was using him. Didn't have to. But Satan was. God delivered his unworthy people. Two seeds. Two people groups. Two branches of the human tree. And it's not purely biological. It's not Automatic, it's not mechanistic. Oh, I'm a believer, I profess Christ. All my children will automatically be saved and will be prosperous all their lives. No, Scripture tells us that isn't so. All of us are born with Adam's heart. And we all need the gracious work of the Spirit of God to change that heart. And that's why we raise our precious covenant children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, praying daily for them that God may be pleased to change them from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And they're not like any other child of a pagan, godless family who knows nothing of the God of the covenant. These are those who belong to God by covenant. I will be your God and the God of your seed after you. God said to Abraham, Genesis 17, 7. 